Well, as we march our way through the Old Testament, working and training ourselves to have the lenses of Jesus Christ as we read these stories, <clears throat> we come to the story of Joseph. Now, we really could take 10 weeks to study Joseph, um, but we're not. <laughs> we, are, we are just covering all of Joseph in, in one week, and so there's a lot to cover. Um, but we know the story, and so what we want to do today, so this, this sermon today will not be as, uh, shall we say, exegetical as others might be in that we're not looking at a singular text, but we're looking at a broad narrative. And it's a narrative that we know, the story of Joseph. We've taken a couple weeks to consider the story of his father, Jacob. Last week, we thought about Jacob wrestling with God as the sun was coming up. Uh, he left uh, Canaan at Bethel, and the sun was going down. But as he comes back into Canaan and wrestles with God, the sun was coming up on a new day for Jacob. And Jacob received at that moment a new name, the name of Israel, the wrestler with God, or God's wrestler, or however we might see it. But we acknowledged last week that while the sun is coming up, if you will, on Jacob, now Israel, and he's entering into a new day, and there's going to be reconciliation with Esau, and he's going to come into the land and so forth. His story does not get much easier. In fact, the story of Jacob is a hard story, but the wrestling match with God uh, and the blessing he receives from God, as we know, came with a limp. Jacob will limp for the rest of his days, but every time he limps, he will know that, as God said, he wrestled with God a man and has prevailed. That is, he has been blessed that he won a victory of defeat, a defeat that was victorious, if you will. The Lord humbled him, but nonetheless blessed him. And he'll have that reminder with him for all his days. And he's going to need it. Because when they get into the land, he's going to have some major crises with his daughter, right? As we said, Dina is, is raped. And as his brothers go to deal with this, they commit a terrible atrocity. And then, of course, his wife, whom he loves, cannot have children. You know, he loves Rachel. He was swindled into marrying Leah. And of course, these two then start battling with each other over who can provide a son for him. Leah is providing children for him, but Rachel cannot. She's barren, apparently. So she comes up with the idea of him sleeping with her servant. This seems to be a, an idea that we've seen elsewhere among the patriarchs with Abraham and, and Sarah and, and uh, Hagar. And Leah saying, that's well, if you're going to sleep with her servant, then you've got to sleep with my servant. And so he has children with not only Leah, but now with uh, Bilhah and Zilpha. And the only one who has not been able to give him a child is his beloved. The one who really is the only one he wanted. And that was Rachel. And of all things, she can't have a child. And now he's of old age, and here we go. This is not an unfamiliar story, if we've been following along with the patriarchs, that this child of promise is going to be of the Lord and not of our doing. And then, lo and behold, late in age, in the middle of all these uh, crises and so forth, uh, Rachel gives birth to Joseph. And then later also to Benjamin. But, but it is in the birth of Joseph 
that, uh, that Jacob or Israel, and you see even in our text, we mentioned that the name kind of flip-flops back and forth. One time he's called Jacob and another time he's called Israel. He gets the new name, but he doesn't quite lose his old name. But he has Joseph, and Joseph is the child whom he greatly loves. It's not that he doesn't love his other sons, but Joseph has a special place in his heart. It's a, he is the child of great promise. He's a child of blessing. He's a gift right from the Lord because his barren wife, the one whom he loved, even in, jo in Jacob's old age, uh, the Lord provided Joseph. And we know the story. The, uh, Jacob loves his son Joseph, and he's so pleased with him that he uh, seems to dote on him a little bit. And the brothers are not very fond of this, right? The other 11 are not real happy with the way that, jo that Joseph seems to get a little added attention from the old man. Now, there's nothing in the text that tells us Joseph is at fault for any of this. It's just his dad has a, you know, he's got a certain place in his dad's heart. And, of course, the brothers stir with hatred and anger over time over this affection. Well, things get heightened, as we know, when Jacob gives his son this amazing gift, this coat of many colors, and they are just put off by the fact that Joseph is strutting around in this coat. Again, nothing uh, in the text to give us any reason to think Joseph is, is flaunting it, but it's kind of hard to cover a coat of many colors in a land where everything is probably pretty drab, tough to get a garment like that, when everything's going to be white or off-white or gray or black. I mean, and Joseph is wearing this coat of many colors. It stands out every time he wears it, and it just, oh, it just needles. His brothers are so upset by this. And of course, things don't get much better when Joseph starts getting his dreams, and he gets the dream that they're all standing out there, and, and they all have their sheaves, and they're kind of standing about, and each of them have a, a, a sheaf in front of them. And then all the brothers' sheaves bow <laughs> before Joseph's. And Joseph, of course, feels the need to share this with his brothers, to tell his brothers, hey, guys, so I had a dream last night. Now, we, again, the text does not help us here. Moses doesn't seem to give us the detail, the juicy details that we, that we want. Like, what was going on here? Was this Joseph kind of sticking it to his brothers? No, you guys are upset with me for the coat of many colors. Well, it's not only my earthly father who's blessing me. It's my heavenly father who's blessing me because he just gave me this dream in which you all bow before me. Or possibly in the dream, was he told to share this vision as, as a prophetic vision with his brothers? We don't know. We can only, we would have to impute motive to Joseph as to why he's telling his brothers this. But what we don't have to, to guess on is the effect it had on the brothers. The brothers are livid, right? The Moses makes it clear in the text. So they hated him all the more, we're told. But that's not it. Joseph is blessed with another dream. And in this dream, the stars, the sun, and the moon bow before him. He tells us not only to his brothers, but to mom and dad, or to dad. And dad rebukes him. Dad rebukes him and says, hey, your brothers are going to bow before you, and now your mother and father are going to bow before you? Now he rebukes him. Oh, and the brothers now hate him all the more. But we're told that Jacob, kind of like Mary, pondered all these things in his heart. Right? He, he held on to it. He, he rebukes his, his son, you know, that the father, the patriarch, would bow to his son. Makes zero sense. But he does kind of tuck it away. Now, he's seen some amazing things. And of all people, Jacob himself might have that little thought in the back of his head, the older will serve the younger. 
right? There's a, this, is a, this is a story, you know, the fact that the father would bow before the son and the older serve the younger is not something unfamiliar to Jacob. It was the prophecy, in fact, that he received at his birth that Esau would. And so, and so Jacob, while he rebukes him, thinks, hmm, you know, I have seen, this has been a little bit of a pattern here with God, and so I rebuke him. But in my tent, I kind of wonder what the Lord might be doing. Well, as his brothers go off to Shechem to take care of the flocks, Jacob thinks it'd be a good idea to send Joseph out there dressed in his wonderful robe to uh, go be a blessing to his brothers. Perhaps it's a little, hey, go check on them, see if they're doing all right. They're your brothers. Uh, might be good for you to go be with the boys a little bit and to uh, bond with them. But of course, we know how this goes. It does not go well. They're not where they're supposed to be in Shechem. They're out in Dothan. How did Joseph find them anyway? Well, this mysterious guy in the wilderness knows where they are. He's on his way to Shechem to go find them, and he stumbles on this guy, and this guy says, oh, no, they're over there in Dothan. And so he goes out to Dothan, and, and they're one, these brothers have to be wondering, how the heck did little Joseph you know, find us out here? Well, here he comes, they say. Let's take care of him. Let's kill him. But Reuben steps up and says, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's not kill him. Uh, let's throw him in this pit. And Reuben, actually, we hear in the text, has some good motivation he wants to throw them in the pit and then wait till they're gone and then get him out of there and save his brother. But while he's in the pit, the brothers are still conspiring. They see the Ishmaelite traders coming and they think to themselves, hmm, yeah, Reuben was right. Why kill him? Why not make a buck off of this? And so they sell him to these Ishmaelite traders and Reuben comes back to rescue him at night and he's gone, finding out they sold him. Well, what are we going to do now? How do we tell dear old dad this? Well, of course, they come up with the idea of dipping his coat in blood, bringing it back and saying, we found this in the wilderness. Uh, he must have been attacked by a wild beast. And Jacob is a mess, right? Jacob's beloved son, the son of his beloved, um, is dead, or so he's to assume at this point. And he's a mess. Again, Jacob's life does not get easier. He's going to go through these trials, and he's going to have to remember that indeed, this, this, I'm blessed, this is what blessing is? And Joseph is going to have a very similar story, isn't he? Because he's going to be told he's blessed and he's going to get these amazing visions. But really, you're going to go through a life and you're going to, you're going to have to have ringing in the back of your head. You're blessed. Trust me, you're blessed. No, trust me, you're, you're blessed. And I just think of that line from Princess Bride. I don't know if any of you saw the movie, the pop culture Princess Bride, where the, the, the guy keeps saying, this is inconceivable, you know, inconceivable, inconceivable. And, you know, his enemies keep overcoming all the hurdles to get to him, and he just keeps, inconceivable, you know. And uh, the one guy finally turns to him, and he says, I don't think that word means what you think it means. You think this is inconceivable, but the enemy keeps overcoming all of your hurdles. And it's like, I feel like Joseph must have this in his head, like Satan coming to him. I don't think blessed means what you think it means. You don't look very blessed, Jacob. You don't look very blessed, Joseph. As Joseph is now in a caravan on his way to Egypt, his father thinking he's dead, and Joseph is going and now being sold as a slave. But of course, by God's providence, these Ishmaelite traders just happened to be there. Kind of very Esther-like in the book. It just so happened. It just so happened. It just so happened that Ishmaelite traders were there. What if they weren't there? Perhaps they would have killed Joseph. What if they were not heading to Egypt, but heading away from Egypt? Who knows what that would have meant for the rest of Israel's history? But there they are, and they're heading to Egypt. And then, by God's providence, he gets sold, but he gets sold to Potiphar, a very powerful man, but a man who develops a relationship with Joseph and begins to entrust Joseph 
with authority and administrative responsibility over his entire house. And everything Joseph touches prospers. And the Lord is blessing him. In fact, the text goes on to say, and the Lord was with Joseph. But if you looked from the outside, you would wonder if he was anywhere near Joseph. Joseph, it must have seemed, was so far away from the Lord. But then you know Joseph is falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, accused of trying to put the moves on her. And what is Potiphar to do? When, when, a, when a slave is accused of trying to rape the master's wife, it usually doesn't end well for the slave. <laughs> There's not a lot of fair trials for slaves, you know. But Potiphar has, Joseph has a place in Potiphar's heart. And Potiphar does not kill him. As he, I mean, what slave would get treatment like he gets? But instead, he's put in prison. And it's an act of mercy on behalf of Potiphar. And Joseph must just be thinking, you know, ah, you're blessed. You're blessed. As he's down in prison for three years. But then he meets the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker down there. And they, you know, have a vision and a dream. And he, he says to them, hey, you're going to get out. One of you is going to get out. You're guilty. You're innocent. And this is the way it's going to end for you. You're going to die. You're going to be justified. And they get out and they say, hey, we'll, you know, we'll remember you, the butler says. You know, we'll remember you when, uh, I'll remember you when, when I get up there and get my name cleared with Pharaoh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him about you. And, of course, he completely forgets about him. And it's not until Pharaoh has his dream of the seven fat cows that get eaten by the seven lean cows, and no one can interpret this dream, that the butler says, hey, whoa, there's a guy down in the prison who interpreted my dream, and I think he could interpret yours. So they get him, they clean him up, he uh, interprets Pharaoh's dream to say there's going to be seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine, and the famine is going to eat up the plenty, so you better go ahead and prepare for this. And Pharaoh says, okay, if you have, the Lord blesses you that way, you have such wisdom. And, and in fact, in the text, he actually says to Joseph, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, not I, but the Lord. So Joseph even here has great humility. And he humbles himself, gives glory to the Lord, not to himself, interprets the dream, and Pharaoh now makes him the right-hand man, gives him his ring. He's basically running Egypt. He's the administrator now over everybody other than Pharaoh. And, of course, we know how the story goes. There's a famine in the land eventually. The brothers come down to Egypt to get food by the providence of God because Egypt's the only place that is blessed with it. And as they do, we know the goings back and forth with Joseph and his brothers. And then finally he reveals himself to his brothers, and they are on their faces before their brother, thinking, that's it, we're done. We know what we would do if we were him. But Joseph shows mercy. And tells them instead, brothers, do not be upset. What you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. For by this he sent me that I might bring deliverance to you. <laughs> amazing. Amazing humility, amazing grace to Joseph, but also through Joseph to the brothers. <clears throat> Jacob will eventually come down and be reunited. <clears throat> and on the story goes into the book of Exodus. So, it's a story. You didn't need me to tell you that story, but I told it. I gave, I gave Genesis 37 to 50 uh, to you right there. So, let's just think quickly <clears throat> as we survey this story now from 40,000 feet, not getting down into the nitty-gritty of any one text, but surveying it at, you know, 40,000 feet. Let's think together 
how we see Christ in this text. If we come to this text with the eyes of Christ, what do we take from it? Now, on the one hand, I just want to think about the pattern and the narrative itself. And we don't want to get too corny here. It's, it is easy to do. We can get corny. Right? We can start looking for Jesus in all the little minute details. In fact, maybe I, come, I brushed right up against that a couple times. Where we'll come and we can make some connections here. But it's also okay for us to look and to see resonances and echoes of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then again, we really want to see the broad arc here. I've entitled this, ser- this, this sermon, The Suffering Savior. This is what Joseph is. Right? He's the suffering savior. He is the savior of Israel. And it comes at a tremendous cost. This is not an easy ascension to glory, but it's actually a descension into suffering. And from there, an ascension into glory. And from that glory, the bestowing of blessing upon his family. Well, of course, Joseph, going back to the beginning now, is the beloved of the Father. He is, if you will, the only begotten. You know, the, the, the word in, uh, in Greek, the, the word for only begotten, really means <clears throat> uniquely begotten. I remember R.C. actually telling us, uh, teaching us that in seminary. That monogenes means the uniquely begotten. And in some sense, right, Joseph is the uniquely begotten. He's the gift now, Benjamin also comes from Rachel, but, of course, but, but Joseph as the first, in a time when the door, that, that chapter shut, Rachel had her chance, she's now too old, I'm too old, not happening, but the Lord grants him of all his sons, heretofore, all his sons, here is the child of promise, the uniquely begotten of his father, uh, Joseph, in old age. And not only that, but of course he's blessed by his father, uniquely blessed by his father, uniquely blessed by Jacob, and this unique blessing provokes the wrath of his brothers. And here, I, again, we don't need you, you don't even need me to tell you this. We, can, we should be able to track along and be seeing our, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten of the Father, un, the uniquely begotten of his Father, and the one who is blessed beyond measure by his Father. It's Jesus who's able to walk around in his three years of ministry and do amazing acts. Clearly, he's overflowing with blessing from his heavenly father. And these blessings that now overflow to the community as he does his wonderful works and miracles, his prophecies and his teaching, manifesting the amazing gifts that the father has given to him, provokes, it bubbles and simmers over time. But the envy of his brothers... The envy of those who were the power brokers, the elder brothers, if you will, there uh, within Israel, who didn't like that this Johnny come lately is coming and messing with their power structure. It's Jesus who's undermining their very authority. He's telling people, you're cleansed, you're healed. Oh, no, no, no. Your sins are forgiven. No, no, no. That's not how it works. You've got to come through our authority structure. You've got to come through the temple. You've got to come through the priesthood to be clean, to be forgiven. But Jesus, this younger brother, if you will, comes along blessed and overflowing with blessing of the Father, gifted with visions, and gifted, by the way, with promises of glory. He even tells these prophecies to to his elder brothers. He tells these prophecies, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory. 
So we've got the one who is uniquely begotten of the Father, and we've got the one who is blessed by his Father, the one in whom the older will serve the younger. In fact, the really, that story that we see within Jacob and Esau is the whole story of the Bible. The old covenant will bow before the new. Like the whole, the whole old covenant, the sacramental system, the priesthood, the temple, the old temple will bow and serve the new temple. The old priesthood will bow and serve the high priest. The sacrificial system will bow and serve the true sacrifice, the Lamb of God, right? The, the, the kingdom of Israel will bow and serve the younger brother, the younger son, right? The new king, even Jesus Christ. So he's beloved by his father. He's blessed by his father. And then, of course, he's betrayed by his brothers, it's his brothers themselves which sell him for some shekels of silver and turn him over to these Gentiles, to these pagans. They turn him over to his death, so they think. I mean, the brothers, you know, the brothers, when they turn him over, yeah, they profit, but certainly this is the demise of, of Joseph. They have no idea what the Lord is about to do in and through him. And then perhaps it's, perhaps it's coming right up to the brink of that kind of, of ah, corniness isn't the right word, but um, reading too much in. But it's just a point of resonance. Take it or leave it. Uh, doesn't, it at the end of the day, it's a point in the story. But I do find it interesting. It's why I chose the uh, New Testament reading we did. Now, you could take the story of Herod. We'll, get, we'll use it again when we get into the Exodus with Herod, who's going around trying to kill all the children of Israel. Um, but here, it's interesting that Herod, you know, it, it, uh, Jesus has to flee to Egypt so that it can be said, out of Egypt I call my son, right? Israel is going to go to Egypt, and this is the prophecy. It's out of Egypt that he calls his son, my son, uh, Israel. But Jesus in this story, and I think this is just like, again, we've talked about, if you watch a, a movie and people put in the movie what we call Easter eggs, right? There's little things in the story that if you have eyes to see it, you can see it. And to me, this is one such thing. The wise men come looking for the king, the one before whom the stars will bow. And what guides them, actually? A star. And they come, and Herod, right, the older brother, is furious to hear that there would be some younger brother who would bear the title king of the Jews. No, 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 no. We're, I am the king of the Jews. And so they seek to kill him. But his life is spared as he's taken to Egypt. And we thought about this in Philippians chapter 2, that though he is equal with God, he did not count that equality with God as something to be held on to, but empties himself taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, very Joseph-like. And so down to Egypt he goes. Yes, he's just a child, but the echoes are there for us. And as he serves, like with Joseph, everything in his hand prospers. Jesus touches it, it becomes clean. Jesus subdues the chaos. Jesus casts out the demons. Jesus heals the lepers. Jesus forgives the sinners. Jesus gives renewed identity. Jesus makes the blind man see. He makes the lame man walk. He touches it. He prospers. Just like Joseph, an amazing servant blessed by the Lord. And then, of course, he's falsely accused. He's falsely accused by his brothers. Just as Joseph was falsely accused by 
Potiphar's wife. So Jesus is turned over ultimately by a false accusation. You will remember that he's accused of saying he would destroy the temple. He said no such thing, though he did prophesy the destruction of the temple. And so as Joseph is uh, falsely accused, he is thrown into prison. And Jesus is falsely accused and thrown into the grave. It's interesting, um, I forget who produced the little movie, but it's out there. You know, Ben Kingsley in, is in it, and uh, he plays, Ben Kingsley plays uh, Potiphar. And um, it's the story of Joseph. It, it's, it's, it's interesting to see. And one non-biblical uh, thing that they have in the movie, but I love, and you always have to be dangerous. It's always a little bit dangerous. You've got to be a little careful when they throw extra biblical things into the movie, uh, because it's not there, but it but it's an indicator that the uh, that the producer or the director or the writer whoever uh, gets something. And in the part where Joseph is falsely accused by uh, by Potiphar's wife, and then Potiphar spares him and throws him into prison, they have him like in a holding cell, kind of underground. And there's there's these wooden you know bars over him, and I think it's it's raining, and he's he's got the bars to this little holding cell. He's in the ground in and he's crying i think of course now this could not be anything like what it's like but it's what i see in my head and he he's 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 grabbing the bars and he he shouts out in the in the movie my god my god why have you forsaken me that is not in the text uh, it's not until we get psalm 22 that we have david saying that but clearly Jesus says it on the cross. And what I love about that is the, the, I assume, that the writer of this story makes a connection for us. That is a proper connection. That in Joseph we see what Christ would fulfill. It's Joseph who's crying out now as he descends into this holding cell, right, down into the grave. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right now, he's been told the Lord is with him. He's told he's blessed. But here, it's, it's, it's reaching almost a breaking point for him. And he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though it's not in the text, this one more occasion of despair, I think, is a point of connection for us with Jesus. But of course, his descent into the prison is not the end of the story for Joseph. Instead, he is highly exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. He's the king's right-hand man. He's exalted and given a name above every name. He, Joseph rules Egypt. You could never have seen the story going this way. But Joseph is exalted and seated at the right hand and given the name above every name so that every knee will bow before Joseph. Ah, his own brothers will come. And they will bow before him. The sun, the moon, and the stars. All the sheaves will bow in the presence of Joseph, who has given, been given the name above every name. And what does Joseph do with this authority? He doesn't smother his brothers, but he blesses his brothers. This is the amazing thing of the story. I mean, the whole story is phenomenal. I mean, the fact that Joseph goes down into the depths and then up to the place of highest exaltation. But what's most amazing about it is from there, he then blesses the very brothers that forsook him. He uses his authority to bring blessing upon his sinful, betraying brothers. 
And when those brothers finally come and he confronts them and manifests himself to them and says, hey, it's me. It's Joseph who you sold into slavery. And they, of course, are thinking, that's it. We're done, right? We crucified the Lord of glory. Joseph says, brothers, fear not. But God sent me here so that I could provide for you. (laughs) And it turns out, most shockingly, that the very sin of the brothers is what God in his providence uses to bless the brothers. Now, children, don't try this at home. (laughs) Don't, Don't you try this at home. Okay, don't you try to justify or use your wrongdoing to bring about blessing. This is not a game you should play. But the God of heaven and earth in his mysterious majesty and wisdom and providence and holiness and goodness knows how to handle such things. And he takes the sinfulness of the brothers and in his unbelievable imagination and providence uses that to be the means by which they are blessed. It is their selling of Joseph into slavery that becomes the means by which Joseph is ultimately raised to the right hand so that when they're in famine and need them, Joseph is there for them. How can, how can that be? How can that possibly be? How could God allow such a thing? And what's, I mean, even more shocking than just the fact that God did it is the fact that Joseph grasped it. It says, brothers, what you meant for evil, not God used for good. We would all get that, and even that would shock us. But go read it, Genesis 50, verse 20. Brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What an amazing man Joseph is by the grace of God. Yet is this not the story of our Lord Jesus Christ? That it is, it is actually the betrayal of the brothers. It's actually the rejection of Jesus that sends him to the cross by which he can then cry out, Father, forgive them. It's actually their rejection that sends them to the cross so that by the cross he might bestow blessing upon the very sinners that sent him there. That is, I mean, that is so shocking and humbling. And hence, Jesus tells the disciples, Peter, while he's whipping his sword around and swinging the sword, put it down, Peter. You don't know what you're doing. But Jesus does know what he's doing. And Philippians 2 tells us as much. That Jesus, like Joseph, but the ultimate Joseph, doing more than Joseph could ever imagine or that Joseph certainly could ever do, Jesus himself became a servant. Jesus himself became a slave and was obedient even to the point of the humiliating death of the cross, went way lower than Joseph ever went. Joseph went low. Man, Joseph's story is hard to read. He's just like, wow, ooh. How could I do it? Would I be faithful? But Jesus' story is infinitely greater. 
For he's obedient to the point of the death, the humiliating death on the cross, whereby he deals with not only the judgment of Rome in his ears, but he deals with the true forsakenness of his father. Right? It's his father who pours out the fullness of his wrath upon him on behalf of the brothers. It's for the brother's sin that the wrath is now poured out on Joseph, so that, on Jesus as Joseph, so that he can bestow blessing. He was obedient even to the point of death on the cross, and therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus, at the time of the Great Commission, tells his brothers, his own loser disciples who ran and fled from him, except for John, who was there at the foot of the cross, but Peter, who denied him. He says to them in Matthew 28, Now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go tell them. Come. Go bring them to me. Come that they might be blessed out of their famine. Let them come so that I can bless them. All authority has been given. I'm at the right hand of the Father. Go and tell them. Well, we see a lot of things in this text, of course, all those little connections that just help us see Jesus It's not that we have to make one-for-ones. It's just that the plot, the whole narrative of the Christian life and the narrative of the gospel is just laid out for us in the life of Joseph. You just read the story, and we don't have to, again, connect everything in Joseph's life to something in Jesus' life. It's not how it works. But what we can see is that this is the narrative. This is the plot of the whole rest of the Bible. This is the plot of the story of Jesus Christ. And, brothers and sisters, this is the plot of the Christian life. Like Joseph, and ultimately like Jesus, you have been given unbelievable and awesome promises. You have been told that you are going to have eternal glory. You have been told that you will wear crowns. You have been told that you will sit on the throne with Jesus. You've been told these things. Yet like Joseph and like Jesus, there will be delay. And that delay will be filled with suffering. This is the story you're in. You've got to come to grips with that narrative. Because that's the narrative you're in. And you must wait. And you must wait upon the Lord. And you will feel forsaken. And you will walk with your limp. And you will say, I am blessed. I am blessed. (laughs) But you are blessed. Like David, many, many years later, who was promised that he's the king. The throne was given to him, yet he had to wait years. Running around the wilderness, suffering, saying, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. Until finally Saul was removed and he became king. This is the pattern of the Christian life. Amazing promise, but delay. Suffering in the meantime by which we must learn to wait upon the Lord. But through the waiting, then comes the time of exaltation when we are exalted and lifted to the right hand of the Father. This is the story and the pattern of redemption, and we ought to see it in the life and the story of Joseph. And let me end with this, that as we, though we will come back to Genesis, as we mentioned, we're going to come back to some of these stories later during Lent. But if we just back out now for a second and look at the book of Genesis, we know that we had the fall and the promise of Genesis 3.15. 
But bookending the story to some degree is the story of Noah and the story of Joseph. And in them, we see two very important and wonderful realities. We see two sides of the same coin of the gospel, if you will. In theology, we call them the active and the passive obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. Active obedience means in order for you to be saved, Jesus had to actively be righteous. He had to obey the law because that's what's required. The Lord calls us to be obedient to him, but you can't do it. But Jesus obeys for you. Jesus does the work for you. And passive obedience is what Jesus suffered faithfully. He endured faithfully through the suffering that came upon him. And in Noah and Joseph, we see both sides of this coin. Noah is the laborer in whom we rest. He's the ark builder. He builds your salvation. He labors faithfully for your salvation so that you in him can rest in the ark and pass safely through judgment and into the new creation. It is because of Noah that you are saved. It is because of Jesus' faithful obedience, his ark building, that you are saved. If not, the flood will consume you. But he's the faithful ark builder. He's the one whose righteousness covers you. And yet he's the suffering savior. Because not only do we have to be obedient to God, we need to suffer for our sins. But Jesus steps in and says, I will suffer for their sins. And the life of Joseph bookends the story of Genesis with a suffering savior. Israel is saved now, not just by the faithful obedience, but by the faithful suffering of Joseph. He suffers for them. So that when the famine comes, they're just blessed. They're blessed. They travel to Egypt and they're blessed with abundance and plenty in the land of Goshen. They did nothing for it. Joseph suffered for it. Joseph's the one that suffered and endured so that they could receive the blessing. And so again, not a one for one, but clearly we see in, this, in these stories this amazing work and picture of Christ. Now, if we can't see that, if we don't take time to acknowledge that, if all we do is read the story of Noah or the story of Jacob or the story of Joseph, it's just interesting historical stories or ones that we go, wow, it must have been tough for Joseph. And we have not read the scriptures properly. But if in reading them, we say, wow, what a savior we have in Jesus Christ. I can see in this story the pattern of what my Lord Jesus Christ did. Then we are reading them. For as Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you will believe me because Moses wrote about me. The story of Joseph, while it is real and historical and is in some sense about Joseph, what Jesus is saying is that the story of Joseph is about Jesus. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our suffering Savior. We thank you for the one who endured immeasurable pain and suffering, bearing our sin, suffering for our failings, even suffering because we ourselves sent him to the cross. Yet you, O Heavenly Father, not only blessing him and exalting him, but through him blessing us, the ones who nailed him to the cross, the ones whose sin drove him there. Oh, Father, what we meant for evil, you meant for good. And we thank you for the deliverance that we have in him. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us seeing this to embrace the pattern, the narrative that we are in. For, Father, you have made amazing promises to us, and yet we wait. We walk with a limp. We deal with moments in which we feel forsaken. 
But Father, help us to wait upon you and to trust that the day will come for we have already seen it in the exaltation of Christ and that we might know the day will come when we too will be exalted with him. Keep us faithful until then, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.